Would you stand with me, please, as Beth comes this morning to read to us from the book of Psalms. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 73, verses 23 through 28. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many of you have certainly heard the names John and Charles Wesley, and yes, you are in a Baptist church this morning, but it's okay to start with a couple of Methodists, John and Charles Wesley, and in particular, Charles, who is often the lesser-known brother, even though he wrote nearly 9,000 hymns, it's estimated that over a 50-year period, he wrote 10 poetic lines a day, every single day. And out of those, those hymns, those great hymns of the faith that he wrote, many of them are even in our own Baptist hymnals. Some you know, like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Jesus, lover of my soul, and Christ the Lord is risen today. Yet, Charles Wesley is often called the forgotten Wesley because his brother John gets so much press for being the founder of, of Methodism, yet Charles' investment into the work of the kingdom of God has stood the test of time. And today we sing, we pray many of the words that he wrote for the good and the glory of God. Psalm chapter 73 is a psalm that's written by a lesser known psalmist. Many times when we think of the book of Psalms, we think, of course, of David. He's the better known psalmist, but there are a few that were written by someone other than David, including a handful who were written by a man named Asaph. And Psalm 73 is one of the Psalms of Asaph, who came from the Levites. And that's really important. I want you to file that away, because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. It's important that he came from the Levites, because there's a small, easy-to-miss reference in what we read that points to a unique part of what it would mean to be from the Levites. But in many cases, the Levites, as the keepers of the temple, as those who facilitated worship among the people in all the different places where the Israelites settled in the Promised Land, many of the Levites were also musicians. And Asaph came from a family of musicians. They were a very well-known musical family who were talented not only in their singing and their playing of instruments, but also wrote lots of music. And some of that music came from Asaph. And it was recorded for us as scripture, as spirit-inspired, so that we might read and pray and even sing some of the same words. The descendants of Asaph were most likely temple singers in Solomon's temple. And so this was a musical family indeed. Psalm chapter 73 though it was written by a lesser-known psalmist long ago, has a great deal to say to speak into our time 
into this moment where we find ourselves right here this morning. And this morning, since it's Mother's Day, I thought I would give you an extra gift. You're going to get two sermons in one today, all right? Because there are two texts that are both from lesser-known authors of Scripture that I believe dovetail together beautifully and again will speak right to our hearts here in this room this morning. The first is Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. And from each text, I'm just going to give you one point. And here's the point that comes from Psalm 73, but it, it's a little bit longer, and every single word is important. Asaph's psalm teaches us, the closer we walk with Christ, communion with God is the greatest desire of our hearts, and His kingdom our highest pursuit. That's where Asaph is going to land this morning. He's going to end up at this place where he says, after all that I've been through in a long lifetime of walking with God, I've realized that communion with God must be the greatest desire of my heart. And I've realized that His kingdom must be my highest pursuit. So let's go back to the beginning of Psalm 73 for a moment and hear from Asaph that it was not always this way. This is not how he always felt. He wasn't always in a season of life as he appears to be at the end of the psalm where things are good. His relationship with God is rock solid. And he believes his, his feet are on firm foundation. In the beginning of the psalm, Asaph says, there was a time where I went through a very dark season in my life. Where I went through a time where it did not feel like my feet were on a firm foundation, but instead that my feet were just about to slip right out from under me. Asaph begins the psalm by saying, Surely I do believe God is good to Israel, and He's good to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he says, I was jealous. He goes on to say in the next verses, I envied the prosperity of the wicked, including their stuff and their health, the apparent ease of their lives, their amassing of wealth. And while I was languishing in suffering, Asaph says, I'd look out at the wicked and I would think they get away with everything. They can say whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. And there are are seemingly no consequences. And yet Asaph says, I, I fear God. I'm afraid that if I say whatever I want and do whatever I want, I'm going to be punished. I'm going to be disciplined. And yet the ease of the lives of the wicked and the prosperous, I just don't understand. The verses right before what we read, verses 21 and 22, Asaph says, my heart was grieved my spirit had become embittered. I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before you. If this doesn't describe a low, low point, I'm not sure what would. A dark season of Asaph's life, a dark season of his soul. And yet he said it was at that moment that I realized my feet were not on slippery ground. If only I would take your hand. And if I would retake your hand once again, 
I would look around me and I would realize that though the wicked seem to prosper, though the world seems to be against me, though my circumstances seem to be completely outside of my control, as long as I'm holding your hand, I am on firm foundation indeed. Why? Because you are my rock. And you are my portion. And you are the refuge for my soul. But again, for Asaph to get to this point, to go from slippery ground to solid ground, he had to retake God's hand. The closer we walk with Christ, communion with God is the greatest desire of our hearts. His kingdom is our highest pursuit. And when we get to verse 23, which is what we read this morning, Asaph finally says, I'm there. But again, I haven't always been there. I'm there now, and, and here's what's different. I've realized that I'm always with you. We might say it this way. I realized you were always with me. Though there were times where I had let go of your hand. There were times where my focus was on everything external. The wicked. Those who seemed to have it better than me. Those who seemed to get away with everything. The envy that I had in my heart, which made me grow bitter. Though my focus was on all of that for a time, now I've realized you are always with me and you hold me by my right hand. And listen, when, when Asaph says you hold me by my right hand, it's not just a hand of support, but this is Hebrew language for identification with. This is Asaph saying when, when I hold your hand, it means I belong to you. And it means wherever and whenever I find myself, as long as I have you and you have me by the right hand, you are saying, this one belongs to me. You're not just carrying me along, but we are walking together hand in hand. And I am like your son. I am your daughter. And I can proclaim with confidence, I belong to you. I love what the church father Ambrose said. He said, if only Adam in the garden had kept a hold of the right hand of God, he would have never fallen for the serpent's trickery. But instead, what Adam and Eve did, they, they let go of that hand of fellowship that God had with them. They let go of the only relationship that really mattered above all their relationship with their heavenly father, their creator. They, like Asaph, let go of God's hand. They put their eyes in the wrong place. And there were consequences that followed. But Asaph says, I realized that when we were apart, or at least when it felt like we were apart, you were still with me. And now that I've come out of that dark time, now that I'm in a good place, I look back and I realize that being with you is all I ever needed. But again, my focus was always in the wrong place. Another way to describe this, the word I've used, being with him is communion with God. We typically only use that word communion when we come to the table and we observe the, the ordinance using the bread and the cup. But Asaph says that, covenantal kind of communion that that deep sacred relationship that I have with God is not only something that I experience or should experience when I come into worship 
Remember, Asaph's a worship leader. He's a called minister. He's a psalm writer. He says that, that communion with God is not just reserved for the sacred spaces or the so-called sacred spaces. He says, wherever I was, you were with me. You were guiding me with your counsel and you were leading me, taking me into places where I would experience your glory. But for a while, Asaph wasn't so sure about that. He was filled with doubt. His, his focus was on others and other things. And so he finally comes to this place where he says, I know for sure that I'm experiencing that communion with God. Which leads me to ask us a difficult question this morning. I'm going to ask you a difficult question this morning. When was the last time that you were sure that you were in God's presence? That you could say without a doubt, I know I was in the presence of God. I experienced communion with Him. I was not only speaking to Him, but He was speaking to me. When is the last time you know for sure you were in the presence of God? Was it in worship? Was it in your, your personal time of, of devotion and prayer? Was it in a joyful time of your life? Was it in a really difficult time of your life? Was it as you were, were serving someone else? Do you know? Can you say, I know for sure. I can tell you the last time I was sure that I was in God's presence. I experienced that communion with Him. Asaph is one who is confessing here. I went through a period of time where I couldn't tell you that. I couldn't answer that question. But what I did is I took the hand of God again. That hand of identification, believing and knowing that I belong to Him, that I am His child. But I also submitted to His hand of leadership to his wise counsel, to his guidance. And as I followed him in obedience, I saw again clearly this is all headed somewhere. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. That God, as he leads you by the hand, is not leading aimlessly. He's not confused about where things are headed. He's not in doubt he may be, be discouraged and dismayed because God loves us and He wants what's best for us in His kingdom. But again, He is not unsure about where things are going. And as we look back over our lives, perhaps we realize like Asaph, if we have been walking hand in hand with God, He's been leading us in truth and to truth and through truth all along. Yes, there were seasons of our lives when we said, I'm not sure where this is headed. I, I, I'm not sure what you're doing. But now as we look back, we see that those were like spiritual waypoints. That along the way that we didn't understand at the time, we now see that's what God was doing. This is where he was leading us. So that right now in this moment, we would be able to say, God has me here and now for a reason. And if we see those spiritual waypoints in the past, might we see this moment in time as just another spot, another stop along the way because we're headed somewhere. And God is the one who is leading us. And I love the way St. Augustine said it. He said, so, so let us run now that one day we might rejoice in our homeland. 
Because that's where we're headed. God is leading us to glory. To a place where we will no longer have that doubt. We'll no longer have to wonder or worry. But today you may say, I'm where Asaph was. I'm walking through a, a valley, a dark time in my life. Again, I want you to look at where Asaph ended up. He now realizes, he proclaims, Who do I have in heaven and on earth besides you? I desire nothing in all the universe, nothing that this world could possibly give me above you. Well, I, I love that confession. In fact, I wrote here, may it be true that all I desire in, in heaven and on earth is Him. But I too confess there have been very few times in my life where that's true. Where I could truly say, I want nothing. I want nothing else except communion with you to have your kingdom be the highest pursuit of my life and everything else matters not. But Asaph says, I'm there because I've also learned that my flesh and my heart, if I put trust only in myself, those will fail me. My flesh without a doubt will fail. My heart sometimes will lead me in the wrong direction. But, Asaph says, God is the strength of my heart. And He is my portion forever. So this is where that word that specifically I believe relates to the Levites, which I told you about in the beginning, comes back into play. It's this word portion, which in, in the mind of every Hebrew reader would think of the land allotments that God gave to each of the tribes when they entered the promised land. It's the same word, allotment or portion. That whether you were from the tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Gad or Asher or Judah or Benjamin, God said, when you come into the land, this area is your portion. This area is your allotment. It's your home. It's your safe place. And it is a land that will provide for you. It will be plentiful and fruitful. It will be a land overflowing with milk and honey. But there was one group of people among the descendants of Jacob, among the people of Israel, who had no allotment. And that was the Levites. The Levites, rather than having a land allotment, they were present everywhere. They were the called out ministers among the people who had no specific homeland, who had no, no claim to the produce of any specific land. They were completely dependent upon the offerings and the sacrifices that came from the people so that they might have food to eat and, and water to drink and a place to live safely and securely. So knowing that, Listen to what Asaph says. Asaph says, My family has no allotment. We have no official portion. But I can say to you today, The Lord is my portion forever. He is truly all that I need. Where I have lack, where I have less than others, where others have some better things that I've not been given, God fills the lack. He is my strength but he is also my portion forever. And the way this ends, I love it. Asaph says, oh, and by the way, I realize that all those people I envied, all those people who, 
for not making communion with God at the center of their heart. All those people who were not pursuing the things of the kingdom as their highest pursuit, they're all on a path to destruction. And here I was envying those people who are choosing death. And, and they, they should know better. They should be aware because God has made it so clear. These, these are the people of Israel. They have heard the word. They're not unreached. They should know better. And yet they still choose to live as if God's word has no meaning. And I was envious of that. Why? Because I remember now all who remain unfaithful to him, they're going to perish. They're going to pass away. That path leads to destruction. But as for me, it's good to just stay near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord, Lord my rock, my portion, and my refuge. And because of that, I'm going to tell the world. I'm going to proclaim all of his deeds because he is everything. When's the last time you can be sure you were in the presence of God? Here's one last question. When is the last time that you, like Asaph, had a fresh understanding and encounter with God's kingdom at work around you? When's the last time you could say, oh, I see clearly for sure God is working here and I am all in because his kingdom is the highest pursuit of my life and and where I have clearly recognized his kingdom is at work, I am all in. I love this quote from Beth Tanner. She is a scholar on the Psalms. She writes, We, just like our ancient sisters and brothers, see a world that does not seem to reflect God's values and God's kingdom. And this leads us to wonder about God and about God's ways in the world. And if this conflict is not resolved, our faith becomes stuck. And it cannot grow further. But Asaph's prayer goes into those places of doubt and finds a path through these times to another level of faith. It is a guide for the times when we have similar questions and it encourages us to keep looking for truth even in the midst of an imperfect world. Even better said than Dr. Tanner, it's what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this morning, can, can you say like Asaph, I have communion with God. He is my rock. He is my portion. He is my refuge. And wherever his kingdom is, work, is at work around me, I'm all in. Can you say today that that God is truly all that you need. Because as I mentioned, there's another voice I want us to hear from. And this is a shorter text, and I promise it will be a shorter sermon than the first. But the two of these go together so well, and we would not be faithful to the text, I don't think, if, unless we read them together. So again, Psalm 73, that the closer we walk with Christ, communion with God is the greatest desire of our hearts. And his kingdom, our highest pursuit. And then here's the second part. When communion with God is the greatest desire of our hearts, when his kingdom is our highest pursuit, we find true peace and contentment in him alone. If you have a Bible open or want to open it again, turn to Habakkuk 3. 
Habakkuk, again, another lesser-known voice, perhaps, among the writer of scriptures. But what Habakkuk says here sounds familiar to something else that you've certainly heard before. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. That's what Habakkuk is about. Habakkuk, in a much different way than Charles Dickens, was prophesying to a people who were in captivity. Habakkuk was a prophet at the heart of the Babylonian captivity when, for decades, he was prophesying to a people who were not in their land, whose temple was in ruins. Many of them had had loved ones who were killed or had been taken away as slaves, as captives. And they lived daily under the strain of this foreign enemy who was lording their power over them. They were at the very bottom, and they had almost nothing to claim to their name. But here's what Habakkuk writes. And I love this is also written as music. If you read at the very end, he says this is, this is for the choir director. It's for stringed instruments. It's a hymn. It's written like a blessing. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. As I was thinking about the season we've been in, I wrote something down, bear with me. Though no hand sanitizer can be found, though there's no toilet paper on the shelves, though there are not enough hospital beds for all the patients, though there's a shortage of ventilators in the most critical areas, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will be joyful in God, our Savior. The Sovereign Lord is our strength. And we look back on this last time, and, and some parts we can laugh about, some parts not so much. But the reality is what we endured for just a few months, Habakkuk and the people of God endured for 60 years as they were in captivity. Most of us have never dealt with a prolonged period of economic disaster like my great-grandparents did. Yet in all of our lives, we've gone through the dark valleys. You may have learned, like Habakkuk and the people of God had to learn, that you can survive economic disaster. I mean, all of us could learn to live with less. All of us could learn, if we had to, how to survive, if we had to be more careful and more cautious and we had to ration. We could learn to survive. But remember, the people here are not just going without food and not just going without provision, but they've lost their loved ones. How do we endure through a, a dark season of, of loss? How do we in, endure through a dark season of a, a bitter divorce? How do we endure through rejection? Maybe a job loss that, that strikes at our self-worth for whatever reasons. How do we endure through the worst of times? And one of the best things that can come out of the worst of times is that if we walk closely with God, even the worst of times will drive us to realize, to become aware of our complete dependence on Him. 
And if in the worst of times we learn that lesson, we learn that we are completely dependent upon Him for everything, for life and breath, for the ability to do every good work, then the worst of times will not be a waste of time. Because we will be holding the right hand of God. Listen to what Habakkuk talks about here. He talks beginning with things that are like privileges and luxuries, but then it gets serious. The, the fig tree, the, the fig is a delicacy, so you only enjoy that when you can afford it. The fruit of the vine from, from the grapes, you don't need grapes to survive, but you drink wine when you feast, when you celebrate. But then it gets more serious. We have no olive oil for cooking or for lighting or warming our homes. We have no grain, the basic staple of our diet. We, we have no bread. Our fields are dry or they're overrun, and so we're starving. There are no sheep in the pens so that we might have wool to keep us warm when it gets really cold out in the desert at night. There are no cattle to work our fields, to do the hard work so that we might have the provision for our family. Losing any one of these individually could be survived, but Habakkuk says we've lost it all. We are in complete and utter devastation. And yet, even in the worst of times, can we say, like Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior, which that word Savior, by the way, is the root word that will be used to name Jesus when he's born. I will rejoice in my Savior because my soul is good. In my spirit, I know that God has me in his hand. And when I'm at my lowest point, I still say, the sovereign Lord is my strength. And he doesn't just make me survive. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He doesn't just carry me through. He lifts me up. He enables me to tread on the heights. And someday, just like Asaph said, Habakkuk says, I'll be in glory. I won't just get through this. God will give me the reward he's promised. I'll make it. And I'll be with him. Even when things look bleak. And listen, because this is so important. Asaph was writing when he was in a good place. Asaph is like, oh man, I look back on that and I say, wow, I sure wish I could have learned that lesson sooner. Habakkuk is still in the middle of it. His circumstances have not changed. And yet he still says, I will rejoice in the Lord. This last week I spent a few days in El Paso, Texas. And in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. And I was visiting, like you see here, mostly churches. I was visiting partner churches that we work with through our missions partners in Texas and and as you know, all throughout Mexico right now, there are people, there are thousands of people who have come from various parts of the world who have just been stuck. They've been stuck there some for two to three years. And imagine if that were our community, and, and we as a church had to decide, so what are we going to do about it? And it's so challenging, convicting, to go into these little Mexican churches and see our brothers and sisters in Christ who have taken their churches and they've turned them into shelters and they are welcoming and receiving and they are serving these families because these families have nowhere else to go. And most of the church shelters, they're filled with children. And, and it is heartbreaking to see. 
But I'm sharing this picture of this particular church because what really stood out to me, so most of the church shelters I visited were at capacity. But this shelter is over capacity. And so here in their worship center, you see, this is where they come and, and they sing and they listen to preaching and they open the word and they pray. They're having people sleep on their pews. Where else can we find to have family sleep? And so they, they worship together and then, you know, folks put all their stuff up so they can have church. And then after church, folks just make the, the, the worship center their own. Imagine in this room where we are right now. Imagine in our chapel, it becoming like a bunkhouse for people who have nowhere else to go. But I'll tell you, as challenging and convicting as it was to see our brothers and sisters in Christ serving like this, what was even more convicting was having a migrant father with his son look me in the eye and with all that they've endured and all they're facing to say to me, God is good. When you hear those words from someone who can say like Habakkuk, these are the worst of times, we literally have nothing and nowhere to go. You remember that no matter what, when we walk closely with God, when we keep His hand in our own, He will lead us in and to and through hard times for the good of His glory and the good of His kingdom. And here on this Mother's Day when we've heard from two voices that are a little less familiar from Scripture. Two voices we, we're not as familiar with talking about communion with God, the kingdom of God. I want to close. Our media team will get our, our video ready. It's 45 seconds or so. I want to close with a voice that's going to be very familiar to you. And this is not a person who the Spirit used to write Scripture, but certainly a Spirit-filled person who proclaimed Christ to millions all over the world, and who can say in 45 seconds about Habakkuk much more than I could say in about 10 minutes. And so here on this Mother's Day, let's close with these words. Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk, because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us that know him put our trust in him and him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. <laughs>